0: This is a broadcast from Salmon Coast Field Station. I'm your host, Claire Atkinson. Salmon Coast is a non-profit field station and a hub for coastal research. Located in Kwakwa-Sutinaw, Hawamis Territory, we can be found deep in the Broughton Archipelago near Echo Bay, British Columbia. Salmon Coast supports innovative research, public education, community outreach and ecosystem awareness to achieve lasting conservation measures for the lands and waters of the Broughton Archipelago and surrounding areas.
1: We do a lot of work on the interaction between sea lice and juvenile salmon and salmon farms. And we often get asked by members of the public and fishers and um, members of the community So how are the salmon doing? And that's like a really simple question with a deceptively complicated answer. And so this project was kind of conceptualized to uh, come up with a better answer for that question than one that was grounded in the data that we have available.
0: All along the coast of the Pacific Northwest, wild Pacific salmon act as symbol and embodiment of the interconnectedness of coastal ecosystems. They link bears and whales as a shared food source, they are a bridge between ocean and forest, migrating marine nutrients into coastal soil, and they have bonded people to rivers and the sea for thousands of years. From the awe they inspire to the lives they sustain, salmon are personally important to many. This interesting concern is reflected in the efforts of communities, governments, and science to better understand and manage natural populations of salmon, which have declined in numbers dramatically in the past 50 years. Despite this attention, monitoring of salmon stocks is on the decline, and assessments of population health in many regions of the coast are not publicly available. To help fill this gap, Salmon Coast Field Station has just released an assessment of the current state of wild Pacific salmon populations in our local region within Kwakwakwakwakw territories. This includes populations in the Broughton Archipelago, northeast Vancouver Island, as well as some south coast mainland inlets. Joining me to chat about the report is Emma Atkinson a young biologist from Vancouver who has spent much of the last five years working at Salmon Coast. She did the bulk of the analysis and writing in this report, along with Salmon Coast board members Andrew Bateman and Stephanie Peacock. Emma is also currently working on a graduate degree at the University of Alberta, researching spot prawns. I should maybe mentioned that Emma is my older sister, so I'm especially proud and excited to talk to her about this project. We'll talk about the context and findings of this report as well as her personal experience working on it. Hey Emma. Hey Claire. Um, just to kind of frame this, can you provide a little bit of context about salmon biology? Like what species of salmon are we talking about? And can you also just give an overview of the salmon life cycle?
1: Yeah, yeah. So on the Pacific coast of Canada, uh, there are five main species of Pacific salmon. So that's different than the Atlantic ones you might find on the East coast. Uh, And so there's sockeye, chinook, uh, chum, coho, and pink salmon. There's also steelhead salmon, but um, they're kind of a, a different category, a different, a different kettle of fish. <laughs> um, and <laughs> uh, and they all sort of follow um, like a a kind of template life history, where they all uh, hatch from eggs in the river systems, and they spend some amount of time growing in those river systems. For some species, that can be as much as a year rearing in lakes uh, like sockeye, but they all at a certain point migrate out to the ocean, so they leave the river systems and they migrate out along the mainland inlets and then out into the Pacific Ocean where they feed and get big, and then after some number of years, and again, it depends on the species, and even within species, there's variation, they come back to the same river that they left and they that's when they reproduce so we call it spawning which is when they lay their eggs and fertilize them and then there's of course kind of variation around that template
0: this report it says it's the state of the salmon in DFO management area 12 can you explain what area 12 is and where it is in British Columbia
1: yeah so um DFO, that's an acronym for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, which is the federal uh, government body responsible for managing fisheries um, and and kind of anything to do with the ocean is their their domain. So things in the river are um, not their responsibility. That's provincial, and that's kind of a lot of detail. But the the units that they manage are called areas. So the full name is like a statistical management area. And all that means is that they basically cut the coast up into um, different blocks and they call those areas and then they're all numbered. So area 12 is just a geographical unit um, that encompasses the northeast of Vancouver Island, the Broughton Archipelago, and then the mainland inlets that are sort of in line with that region.
0: So in this report, there's talk, and I guess any uh, fisheries assessment, there's talk of like fish stocks. So can you clarify uh, what is meant when a report says a salmon stock? Is that a population in a river or something different?
1: So a stock is the word that's used by typically fisheries scientists or managers And it refers to the unit at which a population of salmon are um, assessed and managed. Um, So for example, this might mean setting the quota for how many fish can be caught from a particular stock. And they're usually species specific and then regionally specific. So you define a stock um, differently depending on the type of question you're asking. So, here we're considering a stock, or we'll also use the word population as the salmon of a given species that return to a given river system and breed together there.
0: And why do you think it's important to assess uh, salmon populations at a stream level?
1: One of the big goals of this report and this work was to assess and present the status of salmon at the scale that uh, communities and title holders most frequently interact with them. And so if you are making a fisheries management decision, it might be totally reasonable to consider uh, populations at say an area level. And so you might just be interested in the status of all pink salmon in area 12. But I think as many, People who live in area 12 would, would kind of um, put forward, they interact with salmon at the level of the river often. And so they might mm-hmm. be more interested in how specifically the salmon of a given river. Are doing.
0: Can you uh, talk a little bit about what a stock assessment actually is? Like, what is it that you did to produce these findings about the health of these populations?
1: We were interested in um, kind of two pieces of information. So the first piece of information was the status of abundance. So how many fish are there currently in these populations? And then the second indicator, which is uh, kind of a newer indicator that's not used in a lot of status assessments, was what we call a measure of resilience. So this isn't necessarily how many fish there are. But rather, what is the capacity of that population to rebound from low numbers? So in our case, we used two indicators to evaluate the status of a population. And for both indicators, we were interested in a fairly simple um, a fairly simple way of classifying status. So we just classified them as green, or, which would correspond to good. Amber, which would correspond to fair, or red, which would correspond to a population that was of poor status.
0: You also looked at whether populations are displaying trends of increasing or decreasing resilience. Yeah, that's
1: true. So um, kind of our two core indicators were how many fish are there and how resilient are they. But because we have um, data that go back in time, we also were able to very qualitatively look at what the trend in that resilience has been uh, because the resilience of a population varies over time. And so there are some populations that might have maintained a high level of resilience uh, for as long as we have data, whereas there are other populations that maybe started out at higher resilience than they are currently.
0: That's a very succinct answer. So, just before we get into the findings of this report, can you describe how uh, these data get collected? They're they're collected on an annual basis, but where do they come from?
1: Yeah. So, a huge amount of work goes into uh, the re- the information in this report before it even reaches my computer. Every fall. Um, sp- streamwalkers go out into the area, so area 12 in this case, and each stream that's counted is surveyed either by someone who walks up the stream or river counting the salmon as they walk, or for some of the bigger systems um, where you actually can't walk up a river, they do what's called helicopter surveys, and they're exactly what they sound like. A helicopter does a survey where they fly up the river system
0: and estimate the abundance from from an aerial point of view. Wow, so they're counting salmon from the sky.
1: Yeah, Yeah, they're counting salmon from the sky. Um, Yeah, so they're counting salmon from the sky or from in the river, and they do surveys throughout the fall. So they'll start kind of in the end of August, and then they'll do multiple surveys throughout the fall to try and capture the full return. And you get this estimate of how many fish came back to a river in a given year for a given species. So some rivers have multiple populations. They might have a pink population and also a chum population. Um, And so those would both get counted.
0: How did, sorry, how did they ID fish from the sky though like can they tell the difference between a pink or a chum from a helicopter
1: that's a really great question I've never <laughs> I have never been the helicopter counter myself <laughs> but I think it cut kind of, I think it does kind of get it like a really important part of this is like there is uncertainty the moment you start counting the salmon because like as you might imagine uh these helicopter counts are are sort of like our best way of counting them.
0: So zooming out again, uh, let's talk about the findings. I know that this is kind of a hard question, but can you give a kind of general picture of salmon in the Broughton? How are they doing?
1: The general picture is that most populations in the Broughton in Area 12 are of fair or poor abundance. So most populations fell in that amber-red zone for abundance. But on the resilient side, most populations that we were able to assess for resilience fell in the amber-green zone, so that fair or good zone. And really what that means is that there is cause to be worried about abundance levels and, and about the status of abundance for salmon populations in area 12. But um, the kind of silver lining is that there seems to be higher levels of resilience. So that just means that even though numbers are low and, uh, in kind of many cases, um, there's there's evidence that if we ease up on some of the stressors that there is the resilience to
0: rebound. And even though on the whole uh, most populations in terms of abundance are just doing fair or poor, are there any uh, species or populations that seem to be doing what you would call good? Like, are there any um, bright lights?
1: Certainly. Yeah. So the overall picture is of, of fair or poor but within species, there's a lot of variation. So for pink populations, um, some populations are doing very well and some populations are not doing well. It's quite a mixed bag. Uh, whereas for chum um, chum populations, we're doing of the populations we assessed, of the species we assessed against abundance and resilience, they were the the kind of most worrying species in terms of their trends and resilience. But even within that species, and this, in my opinion, kind of gets at why it's valuable to consider things at a river level, even though overall the picture for chum is worrying, there are a couple really bright lights. And one of those is um, at least kind of based on the data we had for our assessment, Viner Sound Chum, are a population that followed this trajectory downwards in both abundance and resilience for many years, but more recently appear to be recovering and have have kind of this increasing trend in both abundance and resilience over the last decade or so. Um, and Viner Chum, for those of kind of for those who are unfamiliar with this area of the coast, Viner Chum. Uh, are one of the really important chum populations um to to the people, the title holders and the community that that live there
0: so why would it be that some populations are doing better than others like there's this incredible variety um, in the health of individual rivers. what's causing that
1: that's kind of the big question everyone everyone wants to know what single thing uh, drives the populations, uh, like drives, drives the well-being of salmon populations. And, and the complicated answer is that it's a real mix, but a couple of the important things are um, stream level conditions. So um, salmon require a certain type of river environment to be able to spawn. And depending on how you affect that environment, and that might just be due to um, like normal environmental variation year to year or it can be influenced by things like logging if that river environment changes and you have fewer um, juvenile salmon that survive to leave the river that can contribute to river level patterns in abundance and and then the kind of big part that we're still we've, we really still don't totally understand is what happens once they leave the rivers. So once they leave the rivers, um, there's this kind of very multifaceted migration where they experience many different environments on their way from river to ocean. And along that migration route, they also experience many different stressors. So in the Browning Archipelago, one of those stressors um, are the presence of open ocean salmon farms. And then once, once they move beyond that region, they're out in the ocean, where there's a whole host of other things like environmental, uh, like ocean conditions, food availability, predation. Uh, all of these things kind of go into the pot of stressors that contribute to their survival. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonder any of them come back at all. It kind of is. <laughs> um.
0: So kind of zooming out again, Um. I know that the report doesn't, isn't necessarily targeted at answering this question, but can you talk about what would need to happen for salmon in the Broughton to be just given the opportunity to bounce back in general?
1: It's really hard to, um, to prescript, to kind of give particular prescriptions based on um, this report. And part of that is because we assessed the patterns in abundance, but we didn't formally analyze the factors contributing to those patterns. So um, we know qualitatively what factors do drive patterns in abundance. We know that the uh, ocean conditions when they go out um, and the fact that the ocean is warming and and the environment is changing, we know that that... uh, plays a role in the abundance and resilience of populations. We know that fishing plays a role. Uh, there's, there's strong evidence that the presence of open net salmon farms plays a role. There's evidence that logging plays a role. So I've kind of listed off all of these things, and they're all stressors that uh, theoretically, if, if we eased off on those stressors, That's the kind of thing that gives uh, populations the capacity or kind of the the space to rebound. Um, And it probably depends for different species and for different populations. I think that for um, an assessment at this kind of more local community scale, climate change is an existential threat that we all have to reckon with. But I think there's a real interest in local scale action that we can that we can kind of do on the ground in Area 12. And um, the best the best role for this report in that context is to provide a kind of baseline information on, well, which populations should we be most worried about? If we're looking at a bunch of different populations, which are the ones that jump out at us uh, that we should be worried about?
0: And I'm just thinking about this now, like, you don't have to answer this conclusively, but do you have a sense of whether at this point it's better to focus on the populations that uh, are exhibiting really low abundance and resilience or to just focus on the ones that are doing well and make sure that those ones uh, stay in, like, fairly good health?
1: I think that that's a conversation we are having across the coast about salmon, salmon recovery. Um, because that's a really hard question. Like there is a case to be made that a population that was theoretically in a situation where they were at low abundance and low resilience. Um, I think some might argue that, that it's too far gone and that it's not worth saving. Uh, but there's a lot of other factors that come into it. I think the populations that show the most, most promise and, and perhaps uh, you might expect to respond well to recovery efforts are those that are at low abundance but high resilience. So if a population is at low abundance but, but their resilience is still high, then that suggests that, that kind of given the chance they might recover. Um, And then there's certainly an argument to be made that populations that are currently doing well should receive just as much attention to prevent them from getting into um, kind of more dangerous, dangerous territory.
0: So one aspect um, that the report really highlighted uh, was just the fact that there are are significant issues with the available data. So there's, this erosion over time of consistent monitoring in the rivers there's inadequate documentation of the methods used and sometimes these methods have been inconsistent for counting fish o- fishes over the years um so why is the quality and the consistency of data in the long term so important
1: yeah so i um kind of talked about the results and I painted this picture of how populations were doing in terms of abundance and resilience, but a big um, a big kind of part of that picture is the fact that um, of the 156 populations that had sufficient data to assess by either abundance or resilience, there were 61 populations that did not have sufficiently recent data to assess. And so that, what I'm saying there is that there were a number, there were over 150 populations that had enough of a time series of data. So some populations only have two or three abundance records because they were counted two or three times. Right. And then for whatever reason, they were stopped counting. And in that case, like it's it's impossible to say how that population is doing, but some, pop- Populations had been counted for 20 years and then in the early 2000s uh, Due to funding cuts they stopped counting those populations And that's a situation where you would have had sufficient data to assess them But because there are no recent abundance estimates, we don't know uh, How they're doing and so they end up as data deficient so a big a kind of a big takeaway and, and something that really struck me doing the work was just the erosion of monitoring over times uh, o- over time, because, uh, you know, at a certain point, over 50 systems were being counted, and in the most recent year that we had data for, just 11 systems were counted. Um And that's a pattern that we're making
0: like more and more defining decisions based on less and less data.
1: Yeah. 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 So what happens when you count fewer rivers is if you want to look at that broader picture of how populations are doing in Area 12, you have to make more um, kind of assumptions and more guesses at how things are doing. And it's also it's a pattern that's not unique to Area 12. It's, it's a pattern that we've seen across the coast of fewer rivers being counted. And part of that is because of funding shortages and, and cuts to funding. And then um, managers who, you know, are doing the very best work that they can uh, have to make really hard decisions about which systems they're going to start counting, stop counting. And part of it is because it, it's a lot of work to count that many systems you need to have the capacity and and the people that are willing to do it and and willing to go out and and count those systems. So you need the people and you need the the funding. And um, right now the funding is really, really not there.
0: And it's kind of hard to appreciate um, just from the map, like how large this area is, like just spatially, how far... One end to the other is it's a huge amount of space to cover.
1: It's a huge amount of space to cover, and you notice, um, you notice the geography plays a role in which systems are are no longer mm-hmm. counted. So, as an example, there's an inlet called Night Inlet. Uh, that's it's a big, big inlet, and in 2014, uh, those were systems that were all counted by helicopter and um, the funding for, for that counting was cut. And so uh, right now we still, you know, 2014 wasn't that long ago and we can still kind of get a feel for how those populations were doing as of the most recent data. But if the funding for those monitoring programs doesn't get reinstated, then in the next five years, those are systems that would become data deficient because, you um, we, we just don't know how they're doing now. And those are systems that are hard to access and expensive to count because you have to use a helicopter. So, you know, there are very real challenges to to counting them.
0: And another aspect is that the data available for this analysis only extends back to 1950. Uh, but there's been colonial and or commercial fishing and logging in the area for much longer than that. Um, Does this mean that the baseline used in this assessment might not really reflect what we would consider like the true historical abundance of salmon in the Broughton?
1: Uh, Yeah, so you're alluding to this idea of shifting baselines and that is not unique to salmon. It's something we observe in um, kind of all wildlife Abundance patterns, and it's the and idea it's that quite
0: a common theme in in conservation ecology right now.
1: It's it's a common theme, and it's a common theme beyond ecology. I think it's very easy to um, relate to this idea that my grandparents have a different notion of what abundant populations look like than I do, and that my children or my grandchildren will have a different Uh, baseline for what an abundant population looks like than I do and part of how you can um, you know I have seen abundant salmon rivers I've seen rivers full of salmon but but when I'm you know standing next to someone who's been in the area for 50 or 60 years to them they they I, I have the wealth of information for them to say well that's nothing compared to what we used to see Um, and, and the records that we have, the abundance records that we have and that we used for this assessment can kind of, um, patch some of that shifting baseline a little bit in that we have abundance records for the 1950s or 1960s to look at. Um, but the 1950s is not when Machine started and and it's kind of a a fairly arbitrary, the reason we start our assessment there is just because that's where there are data, that's when there are data too. Um, And there's evidence there are other regions like the Skeena River system where people have been able to rebuild the baselines further back and been able to come up with estimates of what abundance was like in the early 1900s using genetic analysis. And the results of wow. that work suggest that um, populations were once more abundant than than we realize, even starting in the 1950s. So, the magnitude of the decline of a population may be um, quite quite a bit more dramatic than the data we have available to us would suggest. And I mean, it could theoretically go either way. I'm I'm saying that because often that is the case often we realize that there has been a larger decline but in theory it could be the other way it could be that populations used to be much smaller Um, but the the kind of main point is that we just don't know because we don't
0: have the data right um and something that was mentioned in the report that i found kind of interesting is the fact that as time goes on, more and more of the time series that's used for these assessments uh, is for years when abundance was relatively low as it's been in recent years. And so slowly, there might be this shift in the benchmarks that we use. So at some point, like green lighting a population saying that it's in good health um, would be acceptable for lower and lower abundances. Is that true?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yep, it is true. And it's something that um, I know we struggled to get around and I, it's something that a lot of fisheries biologists and salmon biologists are, are still figuring out how to deal with is, is um, the kind of, the way these assessments are done, we set thresholds for what we decide is green or amber or red based on the historical time series that we have available to us. So we we, we set it mm-hmm. relative to the data we have. And um, if a population remains at low abundance for 10 or 15 years, and, and so, you know, that population used to be at, higher levels and then for the last 20 years has been persisting at a much lower abundance there's a lot of um questions about whether the benchmarks that we set where 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 they should be based on um because those benchmarks shift just the way our notion of abundance shifts as well
0: yeah i kind of find that an interesting idea that the like our, our tolerance for low abundance will just get uh, higher and higher.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, does a population like at a certain point, are our, our systems and our populations shifting to different regimes where that is reasonable for those benchmarks to be lower because the system has changed and it can no longer support as many salmon as it used to? Um Right, it's it's this whole kind of shifting goalpost. Right, goal that's post. an interesting point. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right, yeah. On both sides, like there, we may just be at this point where the capacity for populations has has also shifted downward.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's a a challenge that's not unique to salmon. It's it's a challenge that any conservation biologist and and the decision makers who are kind of Putting together these recovery plans for species at risk um, have to grapple with is is what do we define as success? What do we define as a population in good status? Um, it's it's mm. really hard.
0: So taken all together, uh, the findings of this report paint obviously a pretty complicated picture for the general state of Area Twelve salmon. Um, What are you kind of hoping people take away from this report?
1: So we kind of outlined in the report that we have, we kind of um, started this project to compile the information that was available and, and more formally paint a picture of how populations were doing given the information that we had. And going forward, we've we've suggested three three sort of uses for the report. Uh, one of which is to serve as a public resource for the status of wild salmon populations in Area 12. So that gets back to my whole thing of um, when we're asked by people that come to the station or or kind of swing by how the salmon are doing in Area 12. Uh, this this is intended to act as a A better answer to that question basically. Um, And then the second potential use is to inform decisions and resource allocation towards monitoring coverage in Area 12. So uh, given that we've painted this picture of an area with declining monitoring coverage, this could inform decisions of which rivers we should push to keep counting um, and and sort of rivers that have fallen off the radar. Highlights those, and then lastly, um, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but but one final potential use for the report is to highlight potential salmon populations for further investigation, stewardship, or restoration. So this is kind of a piece of information that has been missing from a lot of those decision-making processes and and the efforts to target. Um, restoration and and stewardship efforts and and we're hoping that it it kind of could could act as a resource for that
0: and it's interesting it it feels like the report is kind of hopeful in that way as well because it's uh it feels like it provides people with opportunities to direct their efforts in a way. It's like here's a document that can help you decide where um, to target your efforts if you're interested in working on and salmon.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. We try the this report does not answer the question what should we do to recover salmon, but it answers a really important question, which is given current efforts and, and given potential future efforts to Uh, help recover these populations which are the populations to look at which are the ones that we should be worried about which are the ones that look like they're doing pretty well Um, and which are the ones that we just don't know because we stopped counting them
0: one thing i realize is that people when they think of wild pacific salmon often they kind of just imagine like fraser sockeye that's kind of the iconic wild BC salmon. Uh, So how do these results for salmon in the Broughton connect to salmon in other regions of BC?
1: Um, Yeah, so they connect um, kind of on two points with salmon on the rest of the coast. One really clear way they connect is in the data deficiency and, and kind of the eroding trend the fact that fewer and fewer systems are being counted. And that's true across the coast um, that we we have a a less clear picture in that way. Area 12 is kind of unique in that we we are very, we really think of Fraser sockeye as our um, distinct sort of B.C. salmon. And Area 12 has um, a few sockeye populations, but it has a lot of, it's kind of known for its abundant pink and chum populations. So it differs in that way. But one thing that's um, important to to sort of emphasize is that the the Fraser sockeye juvenile salmon that migrate out to the ocean, at a certain point, their trajectory um, merges with the trajectory of the salmon in Area 12. And so, just as the trajectory merges, so too do the stressors that they faced. And a lot of the stressors that I've mentioned, like open ocean salmon farms and changing environmental conditions in the in the ocean and changing prey conditions and predator conditions. All of these stressors are are um, ones that are kind of affecting the salmon in Area 12, but also the Fraser sockeye that we care about and, and are talking a lot about right now.
0: In some ways, I kind of found that these findings, like the general findings in this report, were kind of analogous to how I think many people feel about the state of the world today. You know, there's so many things that, you know, feel like they're not doing well and there's a lot to be concerned about. But at the same time, there are these reasons to be hopeful. And I kind of saw that in the fact that abundance in a lot of Broughton populations is is low um, and concerning. But then there's this kind of like hidden resilience among a lot of the populations as well.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing that um, encourages me broadly when I, when I talk about salmon uh, population health. And I think that that's something that, you know, we defined, we came up with a, a way to formalize resilience at a population level, but if you zoom out and just think about salmon in general, um, they are an incredibly, their life history, the the way, the, the kind of life cycle that they follow has an incredible amount of plasticity. There is enough um, diversity in, in the way salmon do their thing. You know, Like I said, there's that template of their life cycle, but there's so much variation around that. Um, and we're already seeing that play out. So we're already seeing salmon return to the river at different ages in response to environmental conditions. We're already seeing um, salmon start to kind of return farther north, and this has all sorts of implications for for how we relate to salmon. But it is encouraging to 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 observe the plasticity in action. I think amidst A lot of worrying stressors, there there are the ingredients for for resilience.
0: So I've watched you work on this report for over a year now, and I've seen your excitement at the scope of this project and its potential to produce really cool and valuable information. And I've also seen those periods of pain and grief um, where you've been working on data from streams where the returns seem kind of hopelessly low so looking back on this year how would you describe your your own personal experience of producing this report
1: it's yeah it's been um, it's been a really rewarding project to work on and I would say you know as I am a, a fairly young scientist and and this was really the first time I cut my teeth on on um, a project like this that was hard and and I didn't know what the methods were and, and I had to learn a lot as I went. Um, so there was like a, a huge amount of um, personal development for me as a scientist. And then I think it was really striking to begin the work with this idea that I would, you know, go to this database and download a list of all the populations and then have this perfect time series for each population. And then you kind of, <laughs> and and so I feel like you, like you, you start out with like a metaphorical map of the Broughton in your head. And there are all these rivers that I know there are mm. salmon there. And then sort of as as the project goes, moves forward, the, the sort of lights blink out on which populations you can actually even <laughs> get a feel for where they're going. And that's pretty striking. Um, And then it's, it's pretty striking because we were assessing at the system, at the kind of river level, it was striking to, you know, there were a lot of really beautiful stories of of systems that have followed a decline, and then recovered. And then there were some, yeah, like, really, um, really dramatic examples of systems where, you know, they once hosted abundant populations of pink, chum, coho, and all three of those trajectories just follows this very similar decline. Um, And so it starts out kind of, up at, up at one level of abundance and it just peters out towards the the present time and yeah that's that's very discouraging and and is is very sad in a way but i also think it's important that we observe that happening and i think that that is a really big um like a, a really big reason i think it's important to count to monitor the rivers because if you don't count them you don't you don't see them blink out that way, and so you just have this question mark. you don't know how you know it might might have done well or not done well, but at least by collecting the data we know we know where the zeros are, and we know um, we're sort of forced to observe populations that that blink out.
0: Did you see uh, this work at certain points or by the end as storytelling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It felt like with data, yeah, it felt like storytelling with data. it it it, it felt like um, because I spoke to the streamwalkers and and I know the people that walk those streams. I know the people that um, you know have to make the hard decisions of which rivers to count or not to count. there There are people that care really deeply about this area. And at a BC level, you know, at the level of the province, it's easy to miss, kind of miss that nuance and and miss these, these salmon that are really, really important to the people who live here. Um, so I think in that way, just at the scale that we did the work really lends itself to storytelling. And, and that's, that's really what you're doing. You're, you're, you start out with this big question and no answer, and then you kind of hone down the uncertainty and, and you piece together whatever data there are to sort of piece together this partly finished puzzle.
0: And can you talk a bit about what it's like to analyze uh, salmon populations in this large scale and scientific way? You know, you're going through huge data sets and doing all this mathematical modeling, Um, but then you'll go, like, you've actually been out to those rivers, and you've seen the actual fish who have returned to spawn. What's that like?
1: It's really hard to put into words. Um, I, when I started the work, some of the rivers I was very familiar with, and some of them were just completely nebulous to me. And then... um, this summer as I was actually working on, on the prawn fishery, so not even working on salmon. And, but because of it, we ended up going all the way up Knight Inlet, which is that big inlet I was talking about. And um, we had some time and we, we kind of visited those rivers. And it's, it's incredible to to pull up to the Anawati River and you've seen that name on you know four different spreadsheets and you fit you know you've been looking at the data for the salmon that come back to those rivers and then and then to actually see the mouth of it and it's just this beautiful beautiful river and it um yeah i don't know i don't know how to put it into words but it really matters i think that there's that To see it really made a difference to me and really um, kind of drove home to me that, that you know, these aren't, these aren't abstract concepts we're talking about. These are real fish in real places.
0: They're kind of individuals. Mm-hmm. And you've spent five field seasons working on science in the Broughton now. How has your relationship with this whole place, its community, and ecology changed over the last five years you were an undergrad turning i think 22 the first year you came up to sam coast now you're 26 working on your graduate degree
1: i think it's it's like really emphasized and driven my interest in community level work and and doing high quality rigorous science at at the level of community um I think for me that's a really important connection. And the environment that Salmon Coast facilitates for the young scientists that come up there really um, really fosters that connection with the place and the community that you're in. So yeah, having you know gotten the opportunity to go back many, many years every year, there's this gradual accumulation of understanding and more questions that I have and don't have answers for and people that I come back to and have relationships with now and um rivers that I have relationships with uh yeah so it's it's very valuable
0: so wild salmon wild pacific salmon have been important and really vital to people living on the coast for thousands of years what role do you see science now playing in the stewardship and the understanding of salmon in the future?
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: that's a big question
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> i I think that um, i think you can that,
0: just answer one aspect
1: yeah, I think that science is For me, I am drawn to it because it offers a process by which we can reduce uncertainty around really big questions, like around uncertain questions. So um, in the context of salmon, there's a lot of, you know, just as we've talked about what we do know about the populations in Area 12, quite frequently I've, said well yeah that's something we still don't know and that's or that you know there's this big pot of stressors that populations face in different salmon species face and um, to me science is is sort of one useful tool to narrow down that uncertainty and parse apart some of those um, questions so I think the questions themselves, you know, that's sandwiched in between a bunch of different things. Like science is a useful framework and a useful, um, like, yeah, process to answer questions, but it's it's kind of just one lens, and and that's definitely something that's really emphasized to me working in the Browden is um, its value, but it 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 doesn't really do much on its own, so. It, it doesn't really do much unless it's informed by, um, you know, unless you're asking the right questions and then on the other end of it, unless you're um, doing something with it.
0: You've been listening to a conversation between Emma Atkinson and myself, Claire Atkinson, about Salmon Coast Field Station's latest publication on the status of Pacific salmon in Fisheries Management Area 12. Emma's co-authors are Stephanie Peacock, Andrew Bateman, and Chris Gunchard. Please check out the full report at salmoncoast.org. This podcast was produced by Amy Kameranen and myself. Special thanks to Jenny Shine for the beautiful river sounds, and thanks to you for listening.